Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into Power Athlete Radio. If you were at the symposium, you know that Kali lost her voice on the first day, laughing at her own jokes. I'll be filling in and have assured her that I will take no creative liberties in delivering you the premier intro and outro to the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Last Thursday, we kicked off the epic weekend with a live recording of Power Athlete Radio. Gathered around the table were some of the top minds in strength and performance. Weirdly hovering around those people were Luke, Texas, and Cully. And then surrounding us, about 50 freezing voyeurs, watching, judging. Maybe we were all huddled together out of necessity for collective body warmth. Maybe we were all hoping to experience something magical. Maybe it was both. You decide. Here it is, episode 238. Power Athlete Nation, what is up? <laughs> it's that time again, Callie, say hey. Hey. Closer. Like, no, that was I, super close. No, I, Texas, you got to open your mouth a little Texas bit. Texas chest hairs are... Yeah, that's my mic. Hey. So you are listening to the premier podcast in... Strength and Conditioning. Ing. The funny thing is we have a machine that does an echo Mm -hmm. and then they stopped using it so that they could do the echo themselves, which makes no sense. So this right here actually does nothing. But there's a story behind that. Luke went on vacation and left John and I in charge of the soundboard and we didn't know which knob it was. (laughs) So we just made our own echoes. Yeah. And then it caught. So ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Power at the Radio and probably the last you're going to hear of myself or Tex or Callie. Because she isn't talking into the fucking microphone. Because we have Andy Stump on the line. Holler, Andy. Say hello. Well, he's not calling in. He's not really on the line. He's just called in from satellites orbiting the flat disk that is propelling through space that we call Earth. (laughs) That's true. Because if Earth was round, how could we flood? Think about it. You're a fucking idiot, dude. I'm not wrong. The answer is gravity, but yeah. Mm, That's what they want you to think, Andy. Allegedly. So, people, you're listening. This is the show before the big show, which this weekend is the 2017 Power Athlete Symposium. I think we used to get together and record this podcast, mainly just because I think we were all in the room, and then there was like four people getting hammered that was sitting in the audience, and now yeah. it's grown into this. Now there's 50 is... people here staring at us. Those are our and... parents just heckling. <laughs> <laughs> well, really one parent, just Mel Hinsman, who is uh, really my spirit animal. Oh, so God. Those are... <laughs> So there's you guys know Callie's mom. Uh, the Has stories about on. Callie's mom only rival stories of my mom. <laughs> so it's pretty good. She's a hard woman, well, sturdy I, um, woman. <laughs> so I don't know if you guys know, but uh, um, I popped a rib out, and uh, I've been trying to get this rib back in. And so I heard that there was like this uh, old time chiropractor dude who's like you know works on horses. So I actually drove out an hour to go see this guy out in Liberty Hill. You're going to a horse doctor now? Uh, pretty much. He's the only guy I can find him to do manipulations. So, no so the guy sits down and he starts adjusting me and he's like, man, you know why your rib's out? He goes, it feels like you broke your clavicle. I was like, yeah, I did. When I was about four years old, he goes, yeah, your shoulder didn't get set right. He's like, uh, you know, what happened? I'm like, well, well, my older brother picked me down and pal drive me and I broke my collarbone. And I remember I went over and told my mom I was crying, at which she yelled at me to shut the fuck up and stop crying. So I went inside, and then it fell in the night, and so we didn't have health insurance, so my mom took me over to the neighbor who reset it in his kitchen, and then she made me a, a sling out of a dish towel, and I was, like, telling the guy the story, and he's like, where'd you grow up? I'm like, California. He's like, that sounds like some farm stuff. So the guy ends up getting the rib back in, and so I called my mom, and I told her the story, which, of course, uh, um, she's, like, more mad at me that I would bring this up and uh, make her look like a bad mother, which I was like, okay, so you reset the shoulder in the kitchen and made me a dish towel sling. I'm like... I don't know if that's a bad mom, but this is how we roll. 
So, <laughs> well, Andy, take it, buddy. You're here. I'm just along for the ride, man. No, no. Well, uh, <laughs> so um, Andy actually had a pretty interesting idea. He hit me on a podcast idea and said, "Hey, he was not so much interested in like the person as an individual, but more what their vehicle was to success." Correct. And uh, to me, I thought that was great because um, people never really talk about like how you got there. It's like, oh, Andy Stump, you're you know world-renowned skydiver, but they don't talk the fact that you used to be scared of heights. I still am scared of heights. Yeah, which is amazing. So the way I describe it is I think you most commonly see people on two different peaks. You see them at uh, a point where they're setting a goal, and then especially with social media, people selectively portray themselves at the other peak, which would be the achievement of a goal. And I think both of those things are cool, but far less interesting than what happens in between the two, which is what I call the valley. And that's where I think you actually find out who you are because that's where you grind to get from one to the other. And I'd rather talk about that than an accomplishment that most people embellish anyway. Well, we talk a lot about the hustle. Yeah. So John posts a lot of photos of him on his cell phone, uh, <laughs> back to the camera, we working hard. We talk more about hustling So than where this hustling. came from <laughs> was... Kelly, listen, these are details. <laughs> there's certain people on, uh, on social media that seem to have gone to, and I, I, sus I suspect that I, I can't verify Luke this. Summers. Because <laughs> I haven't been able to figure out who it is. But I think there's a weekend seminar that you pay some exorbitant amount of money to, and they go there and they teach you how to like uh, be an Instagram or a social media star. And one of the biggest parts is, is you have to have somebody follow you around with a camera and take pictures of you doing mundane things. And then you post pictures like, yeah, I'm getting that side hustle hold, hold in. Hold that pose. Hold that pose. Hold John. on. <laughs> and then I look like I'm talking to the president. And I think like <laughs> what happened is, is that you can stage this stuff. And I think and it looks very contrived. And so we started kind of looking at a few different accounts and they, uh, they kept talking about this thing called the side hustle. And uh, we just, and then we started kind of figuring out all of our side hustles, and we realized that we have too many of them. Like Christmas a, lights. Christmas lights. Mm -hmm. Luke actually hang puts up Christmas lights. Hang, hang them and bang them, which is our Christmas deal. Yeah. Uh, we have this really hack fab shop where we're making Rornex. It's our new equipment line. Uh, it's made of uh, nothing but Chinese steel. I thought it was Boronex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we got that stuff. But uh, no, it just kind of struck me that, uh, um, you know, as you, what you're talking about is that the idea that you can create anything like your reality in terms of social media. And I always wonder, like, who are they really talking to? And being like, hey, mom. Or maybe they're probably talking to nobody. Do you think that there's a, a need within, like, um, that we've created this, entered this new realm in society where now you have to have some form of justification from a bunch of people you don't fucking know? which seems like what's happening, that people are more interested in like the opinions and the thoughts and the admirations of strangers or those around them, which is kind of what's killing me on the social media thing. I'm like, you have you know, 90,000 likes and all these people giving you shit, but you probably have a, you know awful existence inside. And to me, that seems like if you're judging your self-worth based off of uh, you know, social media, I think you're fucked. I don't think you should do that, but I think a lot of people do that. You think there's a way to uh, create a business out of that? Is it all about the hustle? Just try to make some fucking money? I'm not going to use that word. Just say what? it, Andy. <laughs> Just say hustle. <laughs> I refuse to use that word. When I met Andy, he had a lot of hustles. Yeah? Oh, uh, and in Andy's former life, he uh, worked for CrossFit, and he taught a shit ton of level one seminars to the point of nauseam. And what was amazing is uh, I used to, like, I remember I'd go see Andy. That's actually how we met. Well, yeah, I got up there, and uh, actually, I remember we bonded over. Brian McKenzie got up there, and uh, who's quite possibly the worst presenter on the planet, 
got up and he fucking butchered a nutrition talk where he was like, I don't know, just eat fat, bro. At which point Andy turned to me and goes, I want to fucking punch this guy in the face. And I'm like, you too? I think, did we just become best friends? And we've been best friends ever since. Arguably one of the worst presentations of material, and I use the word material very lightly in the history of presentations I've ever seen. Plus, if you get unscared tattooed on your knuckles, one of two things. One, it's not a word, and two, it means you're a pussy. Well, you remember when he got that? So, so Brian wanted to get a CrossFit word tattooed on him, and he got unscared. And when he came in and showed us, we were like, that's not a word. And he was like, yeah, it is. It literally means I'm scared of everything, is what unscared means. <laughs> Explain. It means. It's a double entendre? Entendre? Entendre. That, has, that would have a sexual undertone or overtone to it. You should know this. You have a degree in rhetoric. Oh, dagger. <laughs> yeah, it's, hang, it's hanging on my wall from Berkeley. Yes. Yours is, uh, did, you, did you even get your high school diploma? Barely. 2.7 GPA, strong. <laughs> Sounds Across like a peak to me. <laughs> Peaking. Well, he was side hustling yeah. <laughs> for the grades. Not using that word. So if I can ask kind of a serious question, though. Um, how do you, like, we're talking about hustling. Well, it's the boom. Um, how do you kind of mitigate this, the bullshit that you see on social media. And like you said, everybody's putting on a smiling face as if they've never gone through, like everybody's always in a good mood all the time. Everybody's life is great. And you were just talking about the, the, the valley of what, you yeah. know, that, that process. But how do you, how do you convey um, a very genuine approach to that when, I mean, let's be honest, your job, parts of all of our job have, have to include social media and have to convey a certain mes message. So how do you ensure authenticity in that approach? I think you tell the truth. <clears throat> I think if you're, I, think, I would say for my own life, I definitely am a sine wave where I have good days and I have bad and everything in between. So. Isn't show, that just called life? Yeah, but show that. Show both sides of the coin, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and then just tell the truth. And not on social media, just like in general. Mm -hmm. you know, if you're using social media as your guideline or your motivation, I would, I would argue that you're misguided. Right. Well, I think just. Well, but I mean, think, think about like I, I, I think about like Instagram. Whenever I look at an account or I, I see anybody that like uh, I tend to you know follow people like whether it be Sornex or you guys or Bird or anything. There's two types of accounts. There's people that uh, where the camera's facing at them all the time, and then there's accounts where the camera's facing out. And I'm more interested in showing people like what I see. Perspective. Uh, uh, yeah, like like hey, this is where I'm at. But um, the one thing I'm really weird on is uh, pictures of my kids. And uh, I just like it, it makes me nervous, like to post pictures. So if I ever post anything on my kids, it's usually like I don't want them to see their face, just because uh, there's a lot of fucking weirdos out there. Yeah. And uh, like, so I'm always like a little nervous when I have good friends that like post pictures of their kids that have big followings. I'm like, I don't know, man. There's a lot of like weird stuff out there. So that like always kind of makes me nervous. I think it's incredibly un, uh, un I don't want to say unsmart. I would say it's a bad idea because you can aggregate a bunch of data and start geolocating where people are, mm -hmm. and it only takes one really off person between the ears to do some some gnarly stuff and i don't know about you but my biggest fear is something happened to my kids that i can't control sure. so i am i think i've posted one picture of my kids ever and yeah you'll never see an address you post locations after you leave you just have to be super smart well i know kate has like a private account where she uh like our friends and she'll post pictures of the kids but i'm like uh, don't ever tag me any of that stuff you should get like kids stand-ins like kids that aren't your own <laughs> that you sounds <laughs> super uh, creepy kelly i, I uh, <laughs> kelly i have a job for you that's kelly side hustles <laughs> yeah kelly side hustles 
Um, is that awesome? I'm, I'm super of, creepy. I'm kind of always amazed, though, with... Uh, um, Child actors. And maybe this is strange, but, like, the level of honesty that people have, too, with the social media stuff. Like, I'll read some stuff where I'm like, wow, I, 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 I don't even know if I'd have the balls to tell anybody that, let alone write that stuff. So I think it's um, it's pretty interesting. Like, I always, I always imagine with, like, the Internet and social media that it would make people, uh, like, more in depth almost and it's made people strangely more callous but people like more willing to share almost like they're, they're willing to put something on social media that they wouldn't tell uh, you know their family members or whatnot I think there's that and then there's also people who are willing to talk to another human being in a way that they would never speak to their face because it's a consequence free environment everything that happens on social media or with a so you're not going to get punchified in your face. Correct. So you could say, hey, I hope you die in traffic and your family's there to watch, whereas you would never, ever say that to somebody if they were sitting across from you, but you can get away from them because it's, you're just interacting with a device, not actually interacting with a, a human being. It's, my question is, what was the outlet for these individuals? This personality type that is expressing themselves on social media, it had to exist pre-social media when y'all were getting to your careers. So how, what were those personalities doing Dungeons when, and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons uh, no. on your way up. I'll tell you this. Like, I, I, I think um, if you're about my age, I mean, a Andy and Bert and I and a lot of you guys in here are about my age. And uh, I remember a time before social media and really the Internet where the only thing I used the Internet for was to book travel. Um, and, like, I remember I was sitting in the locker room and uh, Larry Johnson tweeted something at halftime. And, like, they came down and fucking yanked him out. And I'm like, what was he doing, tweeting? I'm like, what the fuck is tweeting? And I had no idea. I'd never heard of Twitter. I just... Like it was off my radar, and it wasn't until that I kind of got it uh, retired and got into the end or uh, the CrossFit deal that I saw the social media, and I just remember thinking, "Thank God that this stuff wasn't this popular when I was playing in the NFL. I would have hated to have uh, been in the public spotlight in terms of an NFL player with this much mag like microscope that somebody can just like pick up a phone, post it, and get all this information out. It's, it's fucking awful." Like, uh, like you, you know, as a public figure that's doing this job to like sit there and eat your dinner and then have somebody snap a picture and put it on social media to me is like, uh, like that doesn't ever seem like a good idea. But I also uh, cherish like you know my time alone. So I don't know, but some people dig on that shit. And like, there's a lot of people that probably make an exorbitant amount of money. Like I, uh, uh, you know, like, but my favorite is the uh, the self help guy. You know, there's a lot of people that have the social media platform to tell you how it is. And they like, you know, I'm, you know, if, if I'm telling you how it is, I must have all my shit in one sock to quote Dave Brewer. Um, and for me, it's like, ah, like, I don't know, man. Like, uh, I don't know if you're ever going to save anybody through like, uh, through just, you know, speaking. I always think like actions are louder, like, um, you know, like go out and like, you know, be the person you're talking about. Like, you know, Andy, for example, is a great, you know, probably the best one. Like when he told me, he's like, hey, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to jump out of a, a plane and fly as far as I can on a squirrel suit and set a world record. And I was like, fuck yeah. And he's going to do it for um, the Navy SEAL Foundation. We're going to raise money. and I mean, it was fucking epic. And he was like, what should we do? I'm like, well, let's go get on some podcasts. Which at which point we went up to the, uh, the guys at... Um, Is that a Wadcast podcast? Wadcast. You, you, well, I remember he called me. He's like, hey, I need to get on some podcasts. Can we do some shit? I was like, yeah, I, I, let's go on the Wadcast guys. So I called them. We got on their podcast. And then he met Tate, which at which point, you know, he got to go on Joe Rogan, which fucking catapulted it. And uh, that, that was awesome. I mean, so he was doing something instead of being like, hey, you know, let's raise money or we should do this. Andy's like, I'm going to do something fucking amazing. 
and I hit you up with Hobie and then the guys from Skull Candy. You know, um, Hobie's uh, a great friend too. Stay in contact with him yeah. to this day. Yeah, I mean, Hobie trained at the gym, and I remember him coming over to me. and He's like, "Hey, yeah, I just got paid out on uh, Volcom. Uh, I'd really like to come work for CrossFit Football." And I was like, "Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, sure. What do you want to do?" And then, like a day later, he's like, "Yeah, I'm going to go be the global or the GM of global marketing for Nike." I was like, "So you, you don't want to work for CrossFit Football?" Because we really needed you to clean the gym. Yeah, uh, like, <laughs> we had a sweet platinum package for you. Yeah, I was like, uh, a lot of perks. "This was going to work." So, yeah. Uh, but like to me, that was uh, it, it was always interesting for me because I always I, I don't know man like I um uh, and this this is nothing more so than uh just you know my own perception but I just kind of like always thought like it was cool that we were able to help people with their training and provide like a sense of like non-craziness like hey I'm gonna show you guys how to mix a periodized strength conditioning template actually a legitimate strength template with short little conditioning workouts and like what was amazing was as I'm sitting at dinner with Greg Glassman who screams at me you fucking virally infected and destroyed CrossFit and I was like I did how he's like well nobody did strength before you nobody had a periodized strength template they were mixing with conditioning workouts before you came and got out of this fucking idea that people should be strong and then like seven drinks later he screamed at me that it was better to be powerful than fucking elite and then they had to drag him out of there so um, but like to me, well, let's be honest. I mean, he does like. So to would that be a peak drinks. or would that be a valley? Is that a valley? That I'm just like a valley. Can, can we talk about power so versus elite story? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff. But I mean, like, the, like for me, like I just thought it was uh, it was interesting. One that like I just remember when they were like, "Hey, would you be interested in teaching this stuff?" I was so blown away that uh, one that people wanted to know this shit. Or two, that like somebody else wasn't doing it. Like, who's providing intelligent, smart training out there? And uh, that was kind of what got us started. What, take us back to that day. Who was providing intelligent, smart training back then? What year are we talking about? 2008, 2009. It wasn't the internet. I don't know. You tell me. Uh, it was your local. Know. You'd go fucking. You'd go to a. Like a, a trainer, right? Or you go to a person, a performance micro gym. So for me, like, uh, or your strength and conditioning coach, there's sports. like, so being an NFL player is uh, a strangely elitist thing and not on purpose. It just so happens that you do your job. So like, it's probably like, just like anything, but like you work so many hours, like you're there at six in the morning, seven in the morning, and you work till seven o'clock at night and you do that every single day for, for months. And all your friends are NFL players and you don't really have any life outside of that. And then you, when you get done in the off-season, you go train at the place where all the other NFL guys go. So you train at, like, an athlete's performance or here, or I'd go down and train with Roth where a bunch of other guys went, and you just show up, and, like, th that was their job. That's why they were getting paid the fucking money was to train you. And my only question was, like, hey, man, I'm, I'm still going to do what you tell me. Just tell me why. Like, I, like, I just, through my own education, I just want you to know. And if you can't articulate it to me, then, you know, I think you're full of shit. And, uh, you know, that was one thing I always appreciated about Louis Simmons. Louis will sit there and tell you exactly why the fuck we're doing this to, like, the nth degree. And then I just remember him being like, well, it's all mathematics. I'm like, but you didn't graduate from third grade. <laughs> and, uh, but, like, he fucking knows it. Um, so Psycho next. I don't know, man. It, it uh, like, so, like, when I came out, I just was surprised that uh, the CrossFitters, like, I was like, man, like, you guys are training so much. Like, why aren't you guys stronger? And they were like, well, strength <laughs> is just a... Uh, uh, another element of fitness. It's just I one of ten. Yeah, that's it. Well, but I, I remember walking into the into McKenzie's gym and we did a I did a workout that was I think it was five rounds, uh, five reps at four oh five on the bench and then four fifty five mm -hmm. on the squat for five and I did it in like seven minutes, and they were like you did twenty five reps, 
a 405 bench and 455 squat and under like, you know, some minutes. And I remember these people being like, I don't even think I can deadlift 405 and use bench it 25 times in seven minutes or something along with squatting. And I was like, yeah, but this is what I do for a fucking living. And so I remember those guys asking me, being like, would this stuff be easier if I got stronger? I'm like, I don't think it could hurt. And then that was kind of how it started. And then I remember when Andy hit me up, Andy's like, I just want to be fucking really strong. How do we do that? I'm like, well, you got to stop eating 13 zone blocks. It's 11. Oh, God. So Andy... Uh, I can't do math. I did the book, and I didn't carry the one. 11 blocks for three weeks. That was awesome. <laughs> Andy's like, I'm only eating 11 zone blocks. And I saw him, and like, you remember uh, uh, like Beetlejuice, where he was like the little head? Andy straight up got Beetlejuice. And I remember being like, I don't think that's a good idea, bro. Let's go get some to eat. He's like, oh, I just ate all my I ate 11 zone blocks at this one meal. I had a pistachio. tapped out for the day. <laughs> He's like, I got only three and a half almonds. So we, we have another special guest, Mr. Bert Soren. So I'm curious. Curious, Bert, what was when the fitness hit the market in the year 2000? What was that like from your experience? I don't know. Well, you got to remember. So, so this is hilarious. So, like, uh, uh, Bert and I are about the same age, and so I went to the NFL in '99, and Bert was still like throwing and trying to like be an Olympic uh, right. fucking hopeful at that point. I mean, sure. that, you're still in college, right? Yeah, my my uh, graduated South Carolina in '99, so my first Olympic trials was 2000, and then 2004. So to kind of answer your question, there were these little pockets of people that actually had an idea what the hell was going on. You know, Louis Simmons was certainly one, but in a specific way to train for a specific outcome and goal. Um, you had guys like Judd Logan, but back then it was before social media and only everyone was underground. Everyone good was underground. They were like the little Yoda and their little Dagobah forest of their of their gym, whether it be John Coffey down in Atlanta. Sure. Um, oh, yeah. Tom Shaw. Yeah, um, Tom Shaw. You had uh, um, Chip Smith. Chip Smith in Atlanta. Uh, in you know, Pete Bomarito was a, a kid yep. coming on the scene out of IMG. Uh, you know, Mark Verstegen was early in his career. Sure. Um, so you didn't really have, I mean, all these guys, everyone knows their name now. Buddy Morris. Buddy Morris, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and he was, I think he was still up at the Browns around yep. that time. And yep. with Tom Mislinski, Milo, yep. Milo was just an assistant. You had Derek Woodski, who was also training for the Hammer uh, under Judd Logan right after uh, Larry Judge. So you had these, these little groups, and there wasn't social media, and there wasn't even YouTube. I well, mean, it was I, I, magazines, right? I mean, you'd fucking go yeah, you, get well, some articles. What would happen is some, like, like literally somebody would uh, like say, "Hey, this guy's doing some really cool shit," and you physically would get his number and call the dude on the phone. Right, like, I don't follow. Like, like I remember when Chip Smith was training people down in Atlanta. Uh, you know, like I, I, I remember, you know, um, when I ruptured my patellar tendon, I remember calling uh, Mauro De Pasquale and Mauro giving me, um, uh, what's his name, um, fucking Polican's number, sure. and me talking to Polican on the phone, which was awful. Uh, uh, fucking awful but then what was better was when I went back and that's how I got into the Charlie Francis deal which was like for me I mean fuck I'm I'm, 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 I kicked myself for not going to Canada and like fucking camping out on his floor but it was like he sent me his books helped me that's how I got in the EMS stuff so um, like that little piece so I mean there was people like you know Charlie who who, you know I mean that would have been it was few and far between though I mean you knew everybody Two hands basically told you all the good people that were known that had athlete groups training with them, uh, and no one, none of those guys were making videos. You know, a couple started doing it a little like uh, the J.C. Santanas and guys like that, but before that, it was just 
do you know some guys that are kicking ass on the international scene and where are they training and it's some little spot and you got your ass in the car and you filled it up with gas and you drove there and you stayed in a crappy hotel and you begged and borrowed and gave them beer and food to let them you know hang out and talk to you and then you i would literally take them out and try to get them drunk and get me to tell them how, how they beat my ass <laughs> i mean that was it was a decade of that but you're you guys still exist in this i on this ivory tower of performance where it was worth it to you to everyone else who's just but, fucking uh, commoners they but she got to remember like there was a um so training without a goal is just exercise. Right. Like, and, and when I've said that for years, like there was a real deal. Like I remember um, after my second year, so I, you know, I got hurt my first, I came back in my second. I remember we went to the playoffs and I remember playing uh, that year, the New York Giants, and I got to play against Keith Hamilton. And I remember uh, the fucking ass whooping the hammer put on me so much so that after the game, I went and I ripped his picture out of the fucking program. And I kept it in my wallet. Literally, I taped it on the fucking inside of my wallet. So every time I opened my wallet to get anything, his fucking face was there. And I remember looking at my fucking wallet and looking at that dude's face for an entire year. Uh, and I remember thinking, like, every piece of preparation, all of my training, everything I'm going to do. Like, think about that. Like, every time you take out your wallet, use your credit card, take money out, you look, you know, here or there. I got to see the fucking hammer's face. And uh, that's what we called him, the hammer, because he fucking hammered people. And I remember, like, going in and seeing him. And, like, realizing, like, he had all of his kids' fucking faces tattooed on his arms. And I remember being like, what's up with that? He's like, oh, you know, I got a lot of kids. I like to remember them as I'm fucking trying to kill you. So, uh, like, but, like, that was the motivation being like, uh, I'm going to train this offseason. I'm going to find the baddest dude on the planet to get me in the shape so that uh, I don't end up, like, having to tear some dude's face out of a fucking program and put it in my wallet. Like, and, like, you know, Bert, like, you know, hey, like, had this dream of, you know, throwing that, you know, uh, you know, throwing the hammer, throwing the disc, throwing the shot, and like going out and fucking being the best in the world. And so I think when you have that, you know, potential, or like th I always think about too, like the fact that, uh, and Brandon could answer this better for me. Like the powerlifting thing was always interesting for me, but like the fact that like you have dudes that were like moving to West Side, sleeping in their cars to train with Louis so they could go to like some fucking ballroom in Columbus, Ohio, and lift weights for a t-shirt and maybe a couple hundred bucks and the admiration of a bunch of other fucking big crazy dudes. Like, and these dudes live their fucking life for that like existence. It wasn't like us where I was like, man, this is a multi-million dollar deal, but like, you know, for that. So like, but like uh, you identify with that kind of uh, level of craziness more so than the average person that just wants to go to the gym and get fit. And then all of a sudden there was this like, fucking change. I remember walking into that CrossFit gym at McKenzie's place and seeing people fucking training and being like, what the fuck are these civilians doing? Like, mm -hmm. the military guys I could understand, like, football players and other people, but you got, like, housewives and normal people, like, trying to go in there and fucking slay it? Like, it didn't make sense to me. I'm like, what are these people training so hard for? But we go back to Andy talked about he cares more about, like, the motivation than the end goal. So most of us that are the NFL... Journey. The journey than the, the end goal. Um, so most of us that are NFL fans, we only see the Sundays. Uh, but you have a picture of another player, an opposing player, in your wallet. That's the journey. That's the motivation. So is was fitness in the year 2000 just another opportunity for us normies to experience the, well, the journey? Well, I mean, you think about this. Like, uh, well, I was, try I was well, trying no, to turn no, but, uh, to another uh, D3 All-Star uh, over there. Texas... <laughs> Texas story is it's probably one of the more interesting ones in that, uh, you know, he's in a situation where, you know, he wants to be a strength coach. He's working with these guys. He hurts a dude. He needs to learn more. Somehow finds, finds me and, you know, we book seminars so often. 
Thank like, God for the internet. Yeah, I'm the only God, person yeah. to ever say that. Yeah, thank God for the internet. And he comes to the deal, and uh, I was busting his balls this weekend, or was it the other day at the Block One? You could say any day, and it'd be accurate. Uh, Honestly. Carl, I tell him, like, Carl actually came to our, Carl was at the Block One, came to our second fucking CrossFit football event, which was hilarious because Roth didn't show to that one. He, he fucking ghosted me, and I'm over there being like, I don't know what he teaches. I'm just going to make some shit up, and those guys had a great time. And he's still here, and I didn't even know what we were teaching. So, sorry, Carl. So, is that a peak or a valley? Well, it just made me realize that at the end of the day, like, uh, people, uh, the information is what people are coming for. Um, it, it wasn't about this. It wasn't about that. People wanted to hear, um, you know, like, like Andy said, like, what's the journey that gets you there? How did this information come about? And more importantly, people just weren't talking about it. And then there was a weird thing, man, where there was, like, so many experts, and then all of a sudden, like, we went into this valley where they either, like, you know, couldn't teach their explosive seminar anymore for 40 bucks and they kind of just died by the wayside. And I think now we're in a point where there's actually some really authentic voices and some good stuff where I like, fuck man, that's some switched on stuff. Like, I don't know if you guys saw like what happened in Anaheim this week, uh, uh, this weekend with Olympic lifting, but shit, there was a 17 year old kid there who, I mean, what was it like 193 or something? Clean and jerk. I mean, some like, uh, like, you know, 400 plus pounds for like a, and what was the kid like a 94 pound lifter or an 80? I mean, something like, uh, you know, and we were like the first time we meddled. So, I mean, what's amazing is to like think about Olympic lifting and like all this and like just the resurgence within 10 years. I mean, dude, we're isn't, gonna... isn't there risk of the, the pendulum swinging and swinging back? And then all of a sudden, you know, and we know some of the coaches that are that are sh- reshaping that sport. Right. But now does it become that fallacy of achievement where now we've got the one way? Right. And then this this permeates through the the echo proverbial echo chamber of social media or whatever. And now yeah, they start anything with a P, Andy. Uh, But now so now you got a a whole a whole population of people who want to get into Olympic lifting that potentially get misapplication of training early on. And then now we're in this whole fucking circular well, loop. Well, but I, I like like here's the thing like and I uh, and and Berta will agree with this and he'll probably jump in on this too. Like, it's okay to suck. Like 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 that's like no well, no it's not okay to suck. It's not okay to no, suck. No, no like. Here's the thing. Everybody sucks. It's like, like the most powerful stimulus. Like, it is. Getting your ass like, kicked really dangerous stuff. Finishing last is okay as long as it motivates you to not finish last. No, sucking but, is not okay. No, but think about this, man. Like, like shame and, like, uh, sucking. Like, uh, like I, I always think, like, um, they asked, uh, uh, who was that? I think it was, like, the Red Hot Chili Peppers or maybe it was Dave Grohl or something. They asked him. They were like, so, you know, is it, like, you know, talent and music? Like, he's like, it's not these fucking shows. It's like you get some yeah. garage equipment. You Dave sit Grohl. in the fucking garage. And you suck for a long time with your buddies. And then, you know what? Eventually, you don't suck anymore. And next thing, you're fucking Nirvana. But you're not practicing sucking. No, but, like, it's okay. Like, I remember. What do you and, mean, Kelly? And I'll tell you this. Explain. <laughs> in the garage with your buddies. Yeah. Like. <laughs> hey, this is a family podcast. It's not. It's explosive. Uh, is it 10,000 hours or something like but that? But, no. But, but think sucking? about this. Like. So the first day, uh, the first day I lifted weights, I told you guys this. I benched 115, and I, I was you were uh, four. well, no, I was fucking. <laughs> I was, I was uh, 14 years old, never lifted weights. First time I touched it, it was uh, 115, and I had to bench uh, that day it was 95 pounds, and I was so fucking humiliated that the other dudes were like, "Now you got to lift by yourself. We don't want to take the 45s off." And I was like, "So I was the over other there." Women were like, "Yeah." <laughs> Are you done there? We got to load and, out more uh, weight. It was fucking shameful. And I remember thinking, like, you know what? Uh, I might be fucking weak today, but I'm not going to be weak tomorrow. 
And like that little bit, like where, you know, fuck, like it's okay. And that's where I always ask, like, you know, at some, like, it's okay to not be good at stuff like today. And like, you know, like we gave that seminar for the military and I even said to these guys, I'm like, there's a lot of shit that you guys won't be able to do today. And that's okay. I like, I'm going to ask you to squat. We're going to do this. We're going to do all this stuff. And, and here's the deal, man. We've taught hundreds of these seminars. Like as we reflected back, I mean, 300 plus of these things from the Arctic circle down to Norway. And either it was uh, one of the four people at this table have taught pretty every single one of those. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Ben Oliver, who's sitting in the back too, uh, you, you know, like... You know the Arctic Circle is not far from Norway, right? <laughs> he meant New Zealand. <laughs> and you clearly don't listen to the podcast. Everybody knows. Yeah, it's a, it's all the same. Arctic it's, a flat yes. earth. it's a flat earth. That's like Check a it. That's like well, seven that miles. Like, that sounds like globe talk over uh, there. That's, that's a glober, but uh, like... <laughs> It's uh, it's one of those deals where like you know you you go and you train you're not strong but you know what like that's the deal like I'm gonna make a commitment to get better at this stuff so it's like I just think that everybody is uh, so hurt that they're not great at everything and I'm like you're not gonna be fucking great at everything but you know what like you have to put forth the effort and I think what we saw when I first came into this uh, this training space is there was a lot of people doing a lot of awful shit and instead of just being like oh you suck you should get out of this thing people got better because they had to. You know, there was more like like there wasn't much experience there wasn't much like information out there. And then we got to the point where there was like information overload. And it's like and then it kind of was interesting because uh, like all that shit kind of dissipated. And now when I look out there, the people that are doing really cool shit like uh, Travis Mash, like tags me and stuff all the time. And like there's a dude who uh, uh, doesn't have backing uh, like, you know, like the, uh, you know, a financial backer. But yet his kids will win a, win some form of medal. Like Greg Everett, uh, you know, sells everything and moves up to Oregon so he could create a training space. Um, you go through all these different situations and these guys are literally committing themselves to being, you know, or, or Dave Spitz, uh, you know, Cal Strength. I mean, these guys are fucking killing it. And uh, to me, like, that's, that's the part of this thing that fucking is awesome. Just wondering, though, the guys that you mentioned, a lot of them came from that class we're talking about that age class of the ones that had to go on that journey by themselves without that constant feedback and that constant pat on the back and that constant, Oh, here's how good everyone else is all the, I mean, I mean, shit, I never saw anyone throw far until I was at competition getting my ass kicked. There wasn't YouTube to watch. There wasn't other, you know, I, I saw Ed Cohen at 1996 nationals. I sat in front row. That was, well, that was pretty rad. Cause I was right there. But I had to, like, actually go to Philly to see it. Otherwise, the strongest guy in my gym was considerably less strong than that. So you had to actually, like I said, burn the gas, be there. But I also think a, a fortitude of training um, and stick-to-itiveness, guys like yourself and guys like Spitz, we all had to go through it. I don't mean it sound elitist, but we had to go through it in a time where you didn't have this 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 dopamine feedback of every day looking through your scroll and seeing, you know, how many 400 pound cleans do you see now on Instagram? They're they're per relatively common. I never saw one. Yeah. You know, I was the strongest guy in my town with a 315 clean because I was the only guy that knew how to fucking do Dude, it. Dude, uh, so when I was in college, uh, I cleaned um, uh, 172 and a half. And we had a dude walk in who was our walk-on, who was an Olympic lifter, who was uh, um, Olympic lifting for France and training for the Olympics, who all of a sudden, like, uh, he had some funding, and they, got, they took away his funding, and he had to pay for school, so he got a walk-on to go play football, that they, nice. you get a chance to go on a scholarship. He came in and cleaned, like, 
I want to say like fucking like 195 that first day, and it was the first time where I was like, oh, that's how that's it's what it's supposed <laughs> to look like. I can do 195. I, I just remember Pounds. like, and, and this dude's name was, this guy's name was Chris Marie, and he came in and he was eating a baguette uh, with uh, with a beret, a baguette. Yeah, he had I a beret on. I swear to God, <laughs> this was this was. I fucking remember this. He was wearing, he was eating a, a baguette, and he had a thing of brie, oh, like a wheel of brie. Don't forget, John. And Yay. and I swear to God, French Canadian right here i'm not uh-huh. french canadian uh and a gallon of chocolate milk and he was like he walked in and i was like you got to be shitting me dude this guy over here smells like fucking rotting cheese and uh he was like oh a baguette and a brie and chocolate milk was his lunch dark dark chocolate before he and then the whole night we yeah, had those guys yeah. too and, yeah. and and the guy he, he like he and the crazy part is he never played football so they put him in nose guard and when that dude got going in a straight line holy shit and i remember thinking like watching him do it and i was like wow, like, that's fucking awesome. Like, can you t- help me? And uh, I remember he, like, instantly, uh, like, just watching somebody do something like that because, like, we'd seen the videos. Uh, t- you know, uh, Rice Patty, who's my uh, strength coach, Todd Rice, uh, he he showed us these videos uh, of, uh, of uh, like, in Bulgaria. He had been to the Eastern Bloc and, like, you know, fucking trained with these guys and made these home videos, and we had to watch these VHS tapes. And I remember being like, oh, I, I understand. And then when I saw Chris Marie fucking hit that weight, I was like oh you got to race it to the bottom and then hope to god you can fucking just stand up with it that makes sense and like but like to me that was uh so enlightening i went home and i was like shit that's fucking like i want to do that and you know so it like i think the the problem comes down to uh maybe like there's too much access things are too easy and like you know like you can go on and like you know you can hit up somebody and you know there's a program or whatnot but i'm not even sure if it's too much access i just think people don't have personal responsibility to disseminate the information or to to sort through it in like a a smart way because i mean more information you can call it information you can call it trash whatever but there's always been there's always been some form of gossip, some form of uh, shit that you have to, you know, decipher through to get to the meat of what what's important, right? Um, and like the internet's no different, and I think it challenges us to to try to try and do that. And it and I think it's an interesting time because it's gonna. I mean, the outcome will ultimately be okay. Are we able to do that? Are we intelligent, independent thinking people? Um, are we looking at research? Are we looking at science? Or are we basically uh, flat earthers? <laughs> well, uh, personally, well, you, get what, you get what I'm yeah, saying. Personally, right? I'm a glover. But going back to can we do that? What Kelly just said. So we talk about genetics, geography, and opportunity. Yeah. So you didn't know it was possible to clean outside of uh, what was your number in your town, Bert? Uh, like, Three, three fifteen. Until you saw someone else that could do more than you. Yeah. So and then. Yeah, so I train with the Croatians and they're hitting, you know, 380 for sets of five. And I'm like, whoa, 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 you're, like you said, you're doing a different thing than I'm doing. And all of a sudden, mind blown, everything grows. So, with that being said, the opportunity, geography, genetics, and opportunity does now Instagram allow us to expand the opportunity of our possibilities. Well, I mean, but like, uh, um, I think we're in a situation now where like if, uh, if, if I was, you know, 14, 15 years old and I, th- I remember Travis Mash was hilarious. He's like, I just look for all those kids that were pretty good football players that uh, didn't, that were too small to go and like play college or didn't get a scholarship. And uh, well, not you two schlubs. No, uh, what the D3 logo. Oh, it means. Oh, sorry. Okay. Sorry. Okay. So, uh, just made that up. Uh, but like to me, uh, um, 
like it's a situation now where like, hey, like let's say I'm a pretty good athlete and maybe I don't get a college scholarship. I don't know what I'm going to do. Now all of a sudden you have a situation where you have a guy like Travis Mash or uh, Dave Spitz or one of these other dudes that are like, come to Butthead, you know, come here, come, you know, like, like, like Wes Kiltz is a great example. Like he, he found Wes as like, I think it was like a CrossFitter competing in the grid league. And was like, yeah, oh, like a running back as well. Yeah, he was uh, a running back and Division he was doing one, some great stuff. Yeah, and yeah. and then pulled him in and like, you know, shit, we were at Summer Strong where, you know, he's lifting on a gold bar. So here's a situation where, uh, like, that guy probably had a lot of talent, but not so much. Now all of a sudden you put him on this focus side and now he has a chance to, to do some pretty, I mean, set an American record and he's like getting a, a chance to do something amazing. So, like, I think just for the mere opportunity, I mean, you know, I always, uh, one of my favorite things is talking with Matt Vincent and hearing stories about, like, his throwing and, and all this. Jump, jump in here, dude. Uh, some of the funniest stories I've ever heard of uh, him traveling around Iceland to these uh, different, you know, Highland Games things. And, uh, like, but, like, that's what happens. Like, dudes who are athletes, like, you were, I remember you telling me. Allegedly. Like, hey, uh, if you're a pretty crappy thrower in college, there's a good chance you can go be a great Highlands Games guy. It's, good. it's a real good opportunity. The way I've always said it was like, if you were better than me, you could lie to yourself enough to be like, we could, we could make the Olympics. If you're worse than me, like 10% better than me, you could kid yourself about the Olympics. If you're 10% worse than me, you're fucking terrible. <laughs> so it was like an average collegiate thrower. This was a great outlet. <laughs> I and then you to go be on. the best of a bunch of washed-up dudes in another sport. <laughs> yeah, and and the stories are epic. I, don't, I mean, uh, Matt could have an entire podcast just doing invitations of fucking various places and things he's been. Hamish. And, uh, oh, there'll be no money. Yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> so the, uh, but like, you know, so much so that I was showing my daughters pictures of like, we're going to go to Iceland and we're going to go fucking mess with these stones and we're going to have an adventure. And so I've been showing uh, my kids pictures of this and my son, who you guys saw here, is like, you know. My wife's like, Iceland? I'm like, isn't it cold there? I'm like, don't worry, we'll be fine. Not in the summer. In the it's summer. fucking snowing here in Austin, Texas. Right. Right now. Literally. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, like, that's the adventure part. I mean, I, and, and I think what people are really searching for, and, like, it all comes down to community. Like, uh, that's all what this stuff's about. And I think that's why CrossFit, like, hit so big is that um, people don't necessarily go to church anymore. Well, community becomes the platform for accountability. Yeah. Right, which I think when going back to the very beginning, Andy's talking about these peaks and valleys. When you're in the fucking low and in the grind, it's not fun to do that shit. And you probably need a, a training buddy or a community or a group or whatever the fuck the your your outlet is if you're trying to train hard. Do or, you think that, Andy? Do well, you shit. need a training partner or a group? Well, accountability. He He's a fucking seal. I mean, uh, they're like you want to talk about like a team sport. I mean, they refer to them as teams, and those guys train in environment because they're you know working in an operation where they're not fucking lone wolves. So I mean, like to me, go that beat was, up the bad guys, right? Yeah, but I mean, like I I just remember when Andy and I sat down uh, one of the first times and we were drinking, I think it was margaritas or beers. But I remember him explaining to like his job sounded a lot more like my job, except my job just got paid a lot better. So it's kind of interesting, though, because like what you said about having a training partner and then you're kind of filling in the gaps with training on a team and stuff. I keep thinking about what you're doing now. So like interesting thing that you said is you're afraid you are afraid of heights or you were afraid of heights. You say you still have a fear of heights, which I'm like morbidly afraid of heights. Well, I think he was being uh, sarcastic. Uh, he no, may, I'm dead serious. He, I don't so like it's static good, heights. It's good to yeah, have a like healthy fear. Heights. But I'm just curious because what you're doing currently is it's a very independent action. It's a very like personally motivated. It takes you to take the step off the plane. It takes you to train on your own. It's very, um, I don't know. It's 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 just yourself. So I mean, how does that even fall into training with partners? Training like getting over those fears, that kind of stuff. 
I don't think everybody needs a training partner. I think it depends on the type of person that you are. I think suffering is better shared than as an individual, especially over an extended time period. Uh, and to me, I, you know, the fear thing, you can use it as a barrier or you can use it as a threshold that you want to push forward. I don't like heights, so I go and I put myself in situations where I have to deal with that. Uh, you know, fear is a choice, in my opinion. I think everybody faces it equally, but it, how, what you do with that fear and what comes from that is the difference between maybe somebody who makes it to a peak in their life and then somebody who stays in a valley. But I don't know. People are, use motivation when you need to, but I, I worry about people who constantly have to seek motivation from others instead of being able to tap into what it is that can drive themselves. Or even recognizing motivation, right? Where out of, let's say, fear. Uh, there, there's all sorts of motivations that can drive you to the next step or go an extra mile. But it's, it's some people just don't want to tap into it. Well, I mean, um, uh, like for me, uh, I have a tremendous fear of failure. I think I've told you guys this. Like fear was, uh, you know, when I would go out there, like, I, you know, and go play football, uh, part of my deal was I was... Uh, you know, had this number on my back, had my name on my back, and I remember thinking like, like there was a fear of not going out there and, and performing at my best. And I like, you know, people are like, oh, you can't be a fear of this. I'm like, let me tell you, a fear of failure will fucking wake you up in the morning like it like a like a kick in the pants. Like I'd wake up in like a kick in the pants, you know, that dude's fucking face staring at you, and that fear of uh, getting your ass beat in front of millions of people on a Sunday at like you know in you know giant stadium uh, will motivate the fuck out of you, and it, mo it motivated me. And um, I didn't, you know, I wasn't training, uh, you know, to have a good time. I was training to go out there and, uh, you know, not get my fucking ass beat because, uh, you know, that was what I did. I mean, but there's some people that let, you know, fear paralyze them where they can't do it and this. And then there's other people that use it as a motivation. Um, I would never wish uh, a fear of failure like I had on anybody else. Uh, that to me, like I, I, I remember you know, finishing games where we had fucking stomp people. Like, we came down into Houston, and we, like, said, I think uh, we had this the NFL record for the most rushing touchdowns in a half. We had, like, five, and it was, like, two different running backs. I think Priest Holmes had two and Larry Johnson had three. And uh, literally, like, they were going to call, like, a mercy rule if they had one. We killed them so bad. It sounds about right. And, um, like, I, and I remember, like, everybody was so excited. We all got a game ball, and all I remember was, like, taking a deep breath and being like, okay. We're good, right? And uh, and then thinking like, shit, man, I, I got to go do this again next week. And like that fear, like that motivation of like getting up and training on a Monday and Tuesday because shit, man, like I'm not going to go out there and be the weak link. I'm not going to go out there and be the reason that we don't have that happen. So like, okay, so not to trivialize that, but everyone has a fear of failure, right? Whether it be like the consequence is super great or it's, you know, minuscule. I mean, I think to some degree everyone has a fear of failure. But what I'm missing just from like an analytical standpoint of like people, humans, people, whether it's SEALs going through training, whatever, is what, where's that, where's that fork in the road where people decide, okay, like use it towards motivation, like what you were talking about, kind of like utilize it, harness it, like tackle it. What is that element? What's that missing link type thing? And I mean, obviously, I think if, if we knew or it, there was like some determining factor there, we would tap into it. But I'm just curious from your standpoint, like what what would be that factor having observed tons of people choose those that fork in the road in different ways? I would say it's how you're raised. Huh? If you're raised thinking that you're special 
and that the world owes you something and that you're going to get a medal for participation. You're not going to be afraid of failure because you think that the world is due to you on a silver platter. Or you have like some like imagined safety net. Like I, I Correct. Mo most of the people that I know that have done pretty well, there is no safety net. I mean, I, uh, you know, when I, I spoke at Summerstrong, like the one thing that uh, I was uh, extremely honored to speak and the one thing like as I stood up there uh, and I even said it in my talk, like the fact like these guys weren't hiding. Like it's called Soren Expert Soren. Like like they put their name on the company, and his dad fucking stood up there. And you know w when things weren't good, he fucking you know stood up there. And it wasn't like oh, I'm gonna go do something else. And then when Bert stepped in, like this is what we do. And uh, you know we're able to come in, and he's gonna talk about branding and you know vision and culture and some of that from you know humble beginnings to building a fucking juggernaut of a you know. I mean, there's the only equipment we got in our place here for a reason. And um, did you just drop juggernaut? <laughs> What? Oh, uh, well, no, he's a juggernaut. Question. He's not <laughs> the juggernaut. I got a follow-up follow question. Is there a difference between fear of failure or recognition of opportunity? So we went to the Army a couple weeks ago, and then it, it motivated me the way they were talking about this is history. They've never brought in an outside contractor to, to teach strength and performance, and they were telling us, this is the first time this has ever happened. This is history. So that was motivation for me. So it's not a fear of failure. It was a recognize of, oh, shit, we, we, we can do something great here. So is there a difference between the two? Well, I mean, shit, dude. I, I got diagnosed with strep throat and was on my fucking deathbed. And what did I do? I drank enough fucking coffee and was like, you know what? Like, there is Wait, nobody you else. You were scared of what Luke would tell you. <laughs> no, uh, dude, I, I got sick. I had to go to the emergency medical hospital and get fucking antibiotics. And I remember, like, just uh, uh, doing the shotgun approach. I'm like, I, I went into the Walgreens and I bought everything yeah. that I was like, Sudafed, just give me a little everything. And I just shotgun approached and I got up there and was like, uh, I, and uh, during my talk, I actually looked at text and I was like, can I have a fucking water? And he like he was gonna throw it at me, and if he did, he would have hit me in the it. forehead. No, I sent it. The story goes, I sent it. Send it. Send it. And uh, you know, but like that's a situation where um, it doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter any of the other shit. The only thing that matters is were you able to do what you said you were gonna do, and were you able to execute? And uh, you know, that was a huge opportunity for us. I mean, and you you know, you gotta fucking perform when the when the music plays, right? I mean, I'm, I'm sure there were days that Andy did not feel fucking like he, you know. I mean, you got sick. There was, you know, shit. I was always on. felt great. I was never sick. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's not true. Yeah. Mostly true. Well, it was when you eat 11 zone blocks. <laughs> I think it depends on how you view the world. It, the, you know, fear of failure or uh, an opportunity, it just depends on what glasses you view the world through. And if you view it from... I'm do, like, again, I'm do everything, I deserve this, then you're not gonna be afraid. And I also think you probably won't seek opportunity because you're just, you're just too comfortable. Probably doesn't answer your question, but. Uh, I think it does. It was actually a very unexpected answer. That's a good one. Well, where do you think this change has come? Because um, I just remember as a kid being told how worthless I was all the time. So is it the fact that, uh, you know, maybe the parents are, are too nice to their kids? I have no idea where it comes from. Uh, well, dude, you saw it like I, I always think like your perception from when you joined the military. Uh, probably, I don't know if I ever told you guys this, but uh, Andy invited me to go down when he was a buds instructor, 
and I got to go down and view uh, this deal that they that was kind of their uh, <laughs> Uh, what would you call that? The kind of the make or break moment, the kind of the fucking gate. I would call it a good time from the instructor uh, side. It was kind of a it was kind of a gatekeeper deal. So they would bring in these kids as young as potential young seals and, and buds, and they would get to this thing called the pool test. And if they pass it, they go on. If they don't, they fail. And it was uh, uh, like a deal where Andy was legitimately the gatekeeper, and he's like, "You got to come down and watch this shit." And uh, to me, I was like, like. It was fucking... People who watch the test historically get, like, physically nauseous. Well, I, I thought it was more funny, but I was, was more... Uh, but I'm, I, you know, like, but what I was amazed by was, uh, one, uh, like, so let me, let me give you a deal. So, like, what happens is they drop these kids in the pool, and uh, they have to, like, you know, basically problem solve. Like, I'm going to take out his regulator. He's got to put it back in. I'm going to tie a knot in the regulator. i got to get it undyed. And it's kind of a deal where they, you know help these kids you know obviously and it's kind of a make or break moment i just remember one kid um he and he tied about seven knots in his regulator and the, uh like wa- like hose and as the kid blacks out they have like swimmers there and they bring him to the front and they're like fucking have the kid on the deck and he's fucking like turning blue and the dude uh is beating on his chest screaming live live, <laughs> live. and i'm thinking to myself this is where we are like within medicine and then the kid starts coughing out water and they like all walk away and the kid like looks around. He goes, "Did I pass?" And Andy walks over. He's like, "No, you fucking failed. Get the fuck out of here!" And literally, like, the kid just starts crying and like it's just not walks exactly away. Exactly what I said. Probably <laughs> close. It was, re- <laughs> and I remember thinking like, you know what? Like, but but here's the thing: like, not everybody's supposed to pass. Like, uh, you know, and like watching the emotion or whatnot was pretty epic. Like to me. But- well, that's that's where you're forcing the fork that you were talking about, right? And it's. You got to take a path. Is that accelerated adaptation? Can we effectively present forks constructively to... Or destructively. (laughs) I'm okay with that. Why would you not? And this comes back to Andy's talk last year, right? What well, did I talk about last year? I you can't remember. I just assumed nobody knows. Would, it's probably the same talk, and we're gonna love it. For me. Yeah. But I mean, I, like, I don't know what I'm talking about tomorrow. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, like I, I, I remember hearing. Uh, I can't remember who told me who said it to me, but it's like fucking rock bottom is taught way more lessons than the fucking, I, you know, the fucking the penthouse. And I think, uh, like, you, may, you determine who you are in the valley, well, not on the peak. Failure is a far better teacher than success is. Yeah. If you're willing to listen and not just say, "Well, shit, the bed, I can't do that." I mean, you'll always learn better from the failures that you have if you're willing to listen to it and take it and move forward. But is that the situation? Is that the reality we're in where now we have this social media where everything is so fucking, you know, examined that everybody's so afraid to fail? Everybody's well, so afraid, afraid to, like, put themselves up? I think people are afraid of either side of the bell curve. I well, think it, everyone wants to live in this middle where we don't ever have this giant up that we celebrate and we don't ever really try to, you know, recognize the failure. So people dodge failure. It's this failure avoidance. Yeah, but it, and and is that because they're uh, they're afraid of like some public shaming? Of, like, of course, or whatever the. Reason I mean, like it, it's kind of like I think uh, you know, like let's say Bert goes to the Olympic trials and doesn't make it, and all of a sudden he goes home and he like you know tells pops like I didn't make it, and they're like, well, fuck man, let's have a drink, let's figure a regroup, and then all of a sudden you have social media, and now you have fucking ten thousand people that see you fail, and I always wonder if like. Uh, I did know. get an article in the state paper saying that I did not make the nice. <laughs> no, no shit. And, and, and people were like calling you, and you're like, I got, no, I, I know that the I article was more. there. I know I failed. I fucking did it. I don't need I you to call I got way more press. Gamecock oh, oh. misses by one centimeter. Oh, shit. Yay. So that's cool. 
Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? Like, that shit probably fucking burned at you to the point yeah. where you got up the next day and you put together a fucking plan and you're like, you know what? I like, you know, and like, um, you guys have, uh, even though Andy makes fun of it, because, uh, you know, he didn't go to college, but um, was a rhetoric major. I took this class called Rhetoric of Poetry. <laughs> Which is fucking amazing at Berkeley, but I always go back with like the you know um, you know Dylan Thomas do not go gentle into that good night like like that fucking poem to me even though Rodney Dangerfield which is one of my favorite movies back to school uh, oh, the best I think it's um, like yeah what year is that I think it's like eighty five nineteen eighty five certainly not what movie was <laughs> that back to school about what I I mean what year was that movie. Uh, somebody's gonna have to fact check this, but uh, back to school Rodney Dangerfield. What year was that? Hang on, I'm pulling up Alta Vista. Is that really? Is this the one where important? he does the double? <laughs> well, triple, Callie, triple, if you know the history, he does the triple Indy. Double Indy was in but, the radio. Uh, but like, I actually uh, for my po- rhetoric or poetry class, I got up and they asked me for my favorite poem. Uh, what, 88? 86. 86. Like that was for me like the most powerful one, and uh, you know, like that kind of was the idea of like, do not go gentle that good night. Like, you know, rage, rage against the dying of light. Like, don't. You know, uh, don't just be a fucking zero. Like, you know, do something, either burn out. You know, what goes back to the Highlander, too. It's better to burn out than fade away. Of course. You know? go back to the Highlander. Oh, the fucking Highlander is it's like a great documentary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I, I like to think of it as more of a rockumentary. Oh, it's yeah. filmed in real time. Everyone knows that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, like, nice. but, like, that's, um, you know, like, you know, it, it, is it, is it worth going out there and just being, you know, like not like either you're going to epically fail or you're going to be success, like anything less? I don't know, man. I just can't imagine waking up every day and just hoping for average. I'll take the fucking risk. You know what I mean? I've failed before. Or doing a training style deep. that predicates mediocrity? No. I'm, I'm kind of into it, though. What, Let's me- just well, dude, just I'll tell you this, man. You are way fucking better on the social media thing than we are. Like, I, I don't I'm, know that that's true. He's like the guy you're making fun of the whole time. No, he's fucking like, like whenever I look at him, I'm always like, God, Matt's social media is great. And the funny nice. part is I know him. And he's legit in person, too. Yeah, and I'm like, he's the same guy. Sucks. He's yeah. like, he's Success. pretty average. You know, and, and, and the hilarious part is, uh, like, Great he's... podcast, I'm out of here. <laughs> he's, uh, he's posting pictures of his white Jeep, and the hilarious part is, he was like, man, I want to get a Jeep, and I sent him that, and I was like, hey, man, this is a pretty cool one. And then I get a text, hey, I went and bought that Jeep, and I was like... No. Bought a Jeep for nine, I've dumped 12 into her. Yeah. She's doing great. I tried to explain it to him. I'm like, man, don't go buy a car. Like, uh, like uh, what's the rule? Like, you, go, you always have to take a friend with you to buy a car so you have, like, a voice of fucking, like. I brought two. Yeah, but they didn't know shit about no, cars. they don't know anything about cars. One builds he's like, no, dude, the other he, one plays music. Yeah, he, he's like, man, I didn't go by myself. I took my buddies. I'm like, they know anything about cars? He's like, no. <laughs> I'm like, no, you got to have, like, a DJ or somebody there to, like, go with you to look at shit. And that's not like a music DJ. There's an individual named DJ uh, who's a mechanic. More of a Diplo. Yeah, like so a, uh, a Diplo type that could possibly attend and, and mix it and cut it. So when I when when I moved out to California, I brought my wife, my kids, uh, and uh, one of the kids that worked for me back at home, DJ, who's fucking. I'm pretty sad he wasn't here. He's uh, I. I, I loaned him out to my neighbor he's busy working on a yeah car. he's he's i loaned him out to my neighbor and i got to bring him back but uh you know he's super talented kid like anything that breaks uh i'm pretty sure dj can fix it so yeah that's why i'm like okay i need you to fly out here and go look at this thing but yeah and then you sold me you're like oh i bought this well, cheap guys now it's going great ah uh, it just makes me nervous no, i don't get nervous it drives it's not like it's my first vehicle i got a truck that runs <laughs> This one's just a hole I can throw money in. <laughs> it's like a boat. So it's Matt Vincent's side hustle. That's what you're saying. Um, I don't know that it's a side hustle as much as just a hole I can throw money in. 
and your wife keeps Ooh. asking me, how much have you spent on that? And you're like, don't, don't, business. don't, don't, don't ask scary <laughs> questions unless you want to hear scary answers. I don't answers. see her running a small to medium apparel company. <laughs> <laughs> What's amazing is uh, like the fact that you do run an apparel company. Very I'm like, odd. yeah, nobody's more surprised than you, and which is awesome. Yeah. We'll just keep sneaking under the radar as we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and you also have a pretty cool podcast. Nice. Yeah. What's the name of that one? Well, I, I did one with John. It's excellent. You guys should check that one out. <laughs> yeah, we, I, we have seven seconds. I think that's just, I could hear the smashing of my computer. You just hear it going, turn it we got it on. on. And an intro and an outro. I did exactly it. what he told me, and it didn't fucking work. <laughs> no, I suspect you double-clicked like a fucking noob. Is it on? Okay, turn it on. You single-click. Everyone knows it's a single-click. No, nah, the double-click. No, nah, Tex. It's, it's three seconds as you says, yeah, it's recording. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, hey, is the light on? I'm like, yeah, there's lots send of lights it, on. Send it. Just fucking send it. <laughs> Two hours later, we, we high-fived and walked out of the crowd. <laughs> He's like, that was a great fucking podcast. That's going to be a barn burner. I'm like, literally, we're going to burn the barn down on this fucking one. We answered one. a lot of questions. I don't remember any of them. I blacked out. <laughs> uh, but I, I do know we committed to a uh, hate power athlete adventure in Iceland. Yes. Uh, you guys are all, do you guys want to I think come? we should switch the order of those two names. I don't have any problem with that. <laughs> um, Just because it's a hate power it's, it's athlete. Not a deal oh, I'm sorry. Power athlete and to hate. Just really power odd to say. Power, yeah, just about power hate. Let's just like, <laughs> power hate five thousand. You gotta start selling tiki torches. I'm not in that. Thing. It's the wrong market, bud. Uh, I'm, I'm not either. <laughs> I just got. Matt and friends go to Iceland and do dumb shit. <laughs> uh, and the, the, the better part is I would like for my kids to come. Uh, bring, you can bring your kids, too, so that uh, at least yes. my kids will be like, my dad and his idiot friends went to Iceland and just, like, just we're in the middle the of a field trying to lift rocks. <laughs> Stupid. Fucking Man idiots. Man yeah. Man <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I want. And they're like, they got hammered, and uh, we drove around all day. Like, that's kind of what I... Uh, what you do there. Yeah, I would like, uh, I'd like to have that adventure with my kids. Yeah, I got informed when we were there this year that the guy was like, oh, it's a six-hour drive, which is great because all your passengers can just get drunk. And I was like, I guess that is true. And they're like, yeah, you're, I was like, your passengers can drink here? And he's like, why wouldn't they be able to? <laughs> they're not driving. Exactly. <laughs> he's like, you could hold the beer while you're pulled over. As long as you blow zero, zero, who gives a shit? I'm like, that is a really, really logical explanation to this situation. And that's what my, my crew invented, Fjord Loco. <laughs> Which is uh, Explain. Icelandic, Icelandic vodka. Four loco. <laughs> yeah, so it's like Ford loco, but Fjord loco. Fjord. Yeah, yeah so fjords. Icelandic vodka. Did you guys uh, know four four locos coming back on the market? Well, they don't sell it over there. Oh. So we we made this. It's gonna hit their crowd nice. So it's White Monster, uh, Alpha Brain, <laughs> um, a fruit juice and vodka. It'll get you drunk. <laughs> oh, I just got like the fucking heebie-jeebies on all <laughs> cylinders with it until tomorrow. Yeah, but I imagine you can really like it's a really creative type of drunk. What where, you know, you can it, you're saying it will start the car too? That's it how hard could, it is. We, we got real loaded on it, or my passengers did, and then we uh, lip synced and sang uh, "Meatloaf's I Would Do Anything for Love." Ooh. Super good. Just on repeat. Did, did y'all figure it out being drunk on the drink? They, what they would not do. Uh, <laughs> they wouldn't do for love. That for love. <laughs> you know, Tex was is searching for love. Was that a joke by that Tex? Was, I think that was. Uh, you know, Tex. Three. There's three. Tex's jokes are more like the long game. Like they're, they'll be funny in three to five years. Right. They're, they're like yeah. a nice cheese. So After you need to fucking he's dead. Age. <laughs> 
we'll all appreciate Whoa, the shit. jokes. Like a three I do years. remember when uh, Jesse Gray was working for me at Balboa, and Ben will remember this, and probably Nate did too. He rolls in. He's like, man, have you heard about these things called Four Locos? And I'm like, no. He's like, well, they're off the market, but don't worry. I bought a 12-pack. And uh, we sat in his office, and we started drinking them. And, uh, and then he's Jesse like, Jesse Gray had an office? Well, it was my office. Oh, okay. He came in. And uh, I like, yeah, I remember he was like, we started drinking these things. And uh, I remember Kate like showed up and she's like, you idiots need to get in the car. I need to take you guys home. You're like drunk little kids. So we got hammered at the office on the Four Locos. Well, yeah. And uh, after my interview, when you had Ben get me blacked out drunk and eat a a smash of pizza after Malarkey's and I was hung over his balls, just waiting to go to the airport. You're like, no, I got something for you. And you took me to the fucking next to Normita's and had me drink a Four Locos. Yeah, well, I had to get you right for your plane ride. Yeah, and it worked. Yeah, it was great. I was like, so, hey, hey, you got to get back on that horse. No wonder Four Locos is back because it's basically it's medicine. What's that? I think it's Four Loco. There's not an S. No, when you because you drink more than one. It's not Four Locos. It's like the Lone Rangers. It's an I then. It's like Four Loki. It's like the Four. Well, like you remember like the Four like the Lone Rangers. He's like you can't have the Lone Rangers. It's singular. Uh, what year was that movie made? I believe it was 1994. Rangers, Adam Sandler. Uh, Airheads. Yeah, Steve Buscemi's in it and had long hair. It's very odd. Why do you do Great this? Great film. 94. Oh, my God, the greatest movie year of all time. How is that relevant? Because Bert... Wait, my fucking... Like, oh, 94, now we got that figured out. My, uh, my recollection is a little hazy. What do we battle? We battle 94 versus 87? Eight, no, 84. 85? It was 85. Yeah, Adam Sandler. No, it was Rocky. It was Rocky versus 1994. Rocky four. No, no, it was Forrest Gump. It was the leadoff. Nobody's seen Forrest Gump. Nobody even knows what that movie's about. I literally think that's just you. Have you have you never seen Forrest? No, Gump? I've seen Forrest Gump. <laughs> he just he doesn't want to admit 1994 is the greatest movie year of of all time. 1994 is the greatest movie year of all time. Um, yeah, I'm telling you, you're going to curb stomp Let's it. go. We, already uh, we, about we have this. an entire podcast an entire with Bert. entire podcast dedicated to this, trust me. Yeah, it was, it was following it, a hunting... Know. hunting. Will your Top Gun come out? Uh, Cut yeah. to the other podcast. Bert, do you recall what happened in the hunting in South Carolina? I bet there was so a lot the of high fives the getting hammered. No, it's those two, those two things. Yeah, the movie thing. Right. Uh, 85 versus 80, uh, 94, right? Well, uh, Tex was just surprised because he'd never seen those pointy things go in that long thing before. Remember <laughs> that? We were like, no, the pointy things go in there, and then they, they go that way real fast. He's like, oh, okay, I got that. <laughs> Weren't you supposed to hit something? Uh, I saw I hit something. We just, it ran off. <laughs> or it was a tree. Oh, yeah, or... I probably hit the ground. I just heard something hit. <sighs> That gun doesn't shoot really well. No. <laughs> Andy and I had to shoot a, uh, a qual, a qualification in the qual- desert. And uh, all of a sudden, we go shoot this thing. And I look out, and Andy pulls out this, like, Derringer fucking twenty two of a pistol. No. This little Again, HK, uh, SK, like, P2000. Oh, this, this, this little gun <laughs> that's better served to put in a purse. It was in his garter belt. Oh, my God. <laughs> and he pulls it out. And the best part is he's fucking keyholing these shots. And I remember thinking, like... Fuck, he's a pretty good shot. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. Didn't he have another job before this where he actually used weapons? Oh, yeah. It was pretty good. Kelly, bring us back in. Wrangle no, us I in. Don't, I don't know how. And that's the second time. <laughs> <laughs> so, Andy, the we talk about training, and you asked a question about elevated heart rate and then accuracy of skill. Yep. So in uh, 
in training and preparation for SEALs, did they did they do that kind of work where All it's elevated heart rate and skill work? All the time. And John, in football, did they do that work where it's elevated heart rate and skill? Your baseline on a paper range is not your baseline in real life. So well, I what mean, was here, the connection between the two think peak about performance? This, man. Like, like you have to almost, uh, um, like the more advanced you get, you have to dig the bigger, like you have to keep digging a bigger hole. So like I always think like, uh, you know, like if you want to, uh, you know, push the bounds of who you are, like the more advanced you got to just keep digging, you know, digging yourself in. Like I remember the first time I went out and I trained with uh, – uh, the seals like uh, they were running like uh, you know 300 meter sprints, pull ups, dragging tires, doing all this, and then it would and then go to the the range. And it's like everybody can do it when you know it's stress free environment, just pulling from a holster. But like, can you do this in a stressful environment? We did the same stuff. Like we did walkthroughs, and then like you know the minute like you know all of our practice stuff was done at like a you know max intensity, high heart rate. This I mean. Like, cause that you have to be able to put yourself in the situation. Like you don't want to have any surprises. Like in, uh, I mean, I, I can't imagine, you know, anything else. I mean, that was kind of the, the biggest thing that I took away from, you know, training with you guys is trying to simulate the worst situation possible so that you know how you're going to react and you don't have to guess on the fly. Or exceed. Try to replicate or exceed the demand you think you'll encounter in real life in a training environment often to move your threshold on that paper range as far right as possible. Now, with training like at that maximum heart rate and like trying to perform like that, and you were saying that there's a difference always, even if you're trying to push on paper versus that real life scenario, right? Sure. Could you see like a percentage increase that like if this guy is gonna be at 120 in this environment on paper, we know in real life he's gonna be at 150. No, because I don't think it's that linear. You gotta take into factor stress, fear, experience, situational awareness. It's, you can, you can get an idea, but it's completely anecdotal. Well, I didn't know if you would see some guys who, who had a lower heart rate in that stressful environment, and you could kind of target them as like, this is a guy that we need as a leader. No, because you just, you just if a guy is tolerating one type of stress well, you just introduce a different one until you find whatever it is that cranks them up to the highest level that you can get them. I mean, the reality is, is I've never done anything in my life that's mattered with a low heart rate. So low heart rate training is... Hmm largely irrelevant in my opinion yeah but isn't is it like is kind of a strange a calmness heart rate training sure, uh, yeah. podcasting okay. yeah no but i mean if if you think about it, a lot of skill development is done in terms of a low heart rate like uh, like a skill mastery like if i'm going to learn how to like draw out of my holster you okay. do that in a kind of a, a deal but then after you develop your skill you, to progress your skill you, you have to that, put yourself you in a more the mechanics to yeah. Right. The mechanics. yeah we call it skills yep. but then but then now it becomes like i mean we, we used to do this with walkthroughs like yeah i can do this but now all of a sudden put me in a stressful situation and what's interesting um there's two types of people there's the people that uh actually get calmer in stressful situations, which I'm sure Andy's seen that too, where like all of a sudden a hand grenade goes off and you're like, man, this dude could just be like chilling at the bar and like all of a sudden a level of calmness run, rises in. And I, I mean, that was me, like the more stressful, uh, the more relaxed I would get and it was actually easier. Like it was more stressful in like a quiet, like walkthrough environment than more so than a stressful one. So um, my only experience is sport and going back to the old Tyson, like everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face. You spend a week implementing and planning a game plan, but then in the first quarter, your coach is like, ah, fuck it. So in combat situation, uh, it's plan, plan, plan. Have you ever been in an experience it? where it's, I, I don't know, help me out, but it's it's uh, preparation, preparation, preparation. You've been in, ever been in an experience where it's 
you have to plan on the fly. Like uh, everything you prepared, throw it out in split-second decision. So take a guess as to how many combat operations that I've been on went as planned and briefed. Zero. Correct. Correct. So you plan and you practice to establish your fundamental procedures, which become your playbook or the framework or the skeleton for how you're going to do your job. And then you go into the field and you know you're going to call an audible the second that you get there. But those audibles are based off of sound fundamentals and mechanics. Without those, you're proper fucked. So the training becomes just fundamentals? The training is to develop and refine and take your fundamentals as far as possible. And for us, it, we call them SOPs, standard operating procedures that were known, they were published, they were trained to. If you didn't meet the standard, you could go somewhere else. We weren't looking for good people, we were looking for good operators. But once you have those fundamentals, an example would be going into a building and clearing a room. We very rarely talked about what we were gonna do inside of structures, we only focused on what we were gonna do to get to the structure. And we could call an audible as many times as we wanted to, as long as we knew we were trying to get to a door, because once we got to the door, we were right back on our playbook. And we'd break all those things along the way. So it's just high-level mechanics, and then you can deviate as much as you need to. But the amount, the expense behind the developing those SOPs has to be exorbitant. Like, it's probably, some of those procedures are learned from failed, failed missions, right? Where potentially lives are lost, and yep. you go back and debrief. There's millions of dollars pumped into billions. I don't know. Uh, and I guess comparing that to a local police department or something like that, is it, I don't know, I'm, maybe I'm making numbers up, but is there a huge disparity in resource availability? And not only that, but qualified candidates to, to survive that training if you expose it to them? Or is it the proverbial misapplication of training that we talk about within with the weight room? Standards is standard. Yeah. There's nothing to do with money. Yeah. If the police departments aren't holding the standard, then they're willingly or complicitly accepting more risk. And the people that are accepting that risk are actually the civilian populace they're tasked with upholding the laws for. So the standard doesn't change inside of that. The fundamentals and the theories are exactly the same. The selection process should be exactly the same. Now, is it always applied equally? Do budgets come into place? Yes, but that doesn't change the standard. Shouldn't or doesn't? I'm not a police officer, so I can't say. It shouldn't. Right. And if it does, then it has to be understood that an inherent increase in risk has occurred. Yeah, but the irony here is, like, the funding would come from the people who are the police are serving, right? And they don't want to fucking throw cash at departments. This is Brandon Lilly, for the record. Just asking a question or more of a statement of, of observance. I think in a room full of people that that have incorporated fitness into their life. Any one of us, myself included, 14 knee surgeries. Matt with six, seven knee surgeries? Seven knee surgeries. John's got a bunch. Yeah, could walk in and pass a standard fitness test for a police department. Right. Is that the standard that we should accept for a, for a, for a organization that is supposed to provide, protect, and serve, right? It's not the only screening criteria, though. No, I, no, I understand that 100%. But in the event of if I can pass that test at this level of, you know, compromised health of 14 knee surgeries, obese by the BMI scale, is that a standard that I want to have? You know, the equalizer then becomes the weapon, right? If I can extremely overimpose or, or superimpose my power upon that officer, is the equalizer the gun or is the equalizer his ability? I don't know. 
but I do know that I work with police officers and I'm extremely impressed with some and I'm extremely underwhelmed with some. So how do those that I'm not impressed with and I can report to their superior and say, this is not good, this is not acceptable, this person does not make me feel safe. How does that person continue to pass their test without having a reevaluation of what the standard is. I think it's still a little bit of supply and demand on the position. Oh, right? you're absolutely because right. And that's the issue. It's just like school teachers. It's just like teachers. Exactly. We People... start paying teachers 90 grand a year. We start paying cops $100,000 a year. We get a different caliber of person who wants to take that job. And Other than, you know, some of which that feel the calling to it, that that's what they want to do. The same with, the, you know, the good folks that go to the military. Not that, well, I guess I could probably do this. Right. Well, and, I, I think that's the issue is that, you're requiring of someone like yourself at the highest level of, of standard of testing, of training, of execution, we're asking the most of these people, probably a higher level of, of execution than even a superior athlete or an executive. We're asking, well, I was never going to die doing the Highland Right, course. exactly. So we're, we're asking so much, and it's like, how much can we crank out of this person for the least amount of return, right? right? And you get hurt. Well, you go to you go to the VA, and it's just hurdle after hurdle after hoop after hoop. And what is the reward? What is the incentivization for these people to say, "I want to do more"? Like, I've got to do this extra on my time off when I'm already pissed off. I'm already underpaid. I'm already overworked. I'm already in a situation where I have to compromise what I know I should do versus what could be exposed as what I did wrong, right? So I think that's a real issue in this society where we've handcuffed our officers, we've, we've handcuffed our military, and we've also done that on a standard level because we need more people in that field. We're not asking, we want the best, we want the cream of the crop, we want the prized winner to come over here and protect and serve. We need people to do this job, so we'll fill that with the middle. Well, I think you can white box that problem across industry, and it comes back to this recipe, whatever the catalyst is to recognize motivation, right? Sure. So is it going to be, I need more cash? I don't know. Is it, uh, I need better training uh, available? Is it a higher standard of fitness testing? It's just, it's all a fucking problem because you have, going back to what John said too, you have people who are really good, you have fucking turkeys who these donkeys can't do shit but they're in there and they're fucking set and nothing's going to get them out of there. So you got the donkey and you got this fucking A player. How do you get the donkey to fucking well, perform? And uh, so John and I were up at the Army and uh, they said something interesting that caught my eye. It was uh, during military time, so when they're deployed, fitness tests are suspended. Yes. So they don't give a shit. They don't care. You have to operate at a high level at all times. Well, they, they also had a deal where the guys are going out in the field. They're basically camping in their backyards for four weeks, and they had no access to any fitness equipment. So the guy's like, how do I do this training? How do I do this? And it's like, uh, well, we got to figure out a solution, but here's some ways that you can train while you might potentially not have barbells. Like looking at that as like a, uh, you know, like I can't train unless I have access to a medicine ball and a barbell and all this. I'm like, dude, there's other ways to do this shit. Rocks and ammo cans. Yeah. I mean, Wait. like, dude, for years, yeah, I got to go. Resistance is resistance. Yeah. We, we, yeah, we gave, and we gave him some outlets for, for that. But at the same time, like a police officer, you're always on. Your game day is year-round. Your deployment is your career. So how do we institute, uh, or I mean, how do you prepare, or how do we get everyone to prepare to the level they need to, you know, to always be on? Is that possible? Something interesting in the U.K., when I was over there, I was actually speaking with one of their officers. Uh, his name is Scott. 
and there was a pretty controversial shooting over there. Um, as you know, most of their officers are unarmed, but then they have a special unit that is armed that comes to escalated uh, situations. There was a blowback because an officer discharged their weapon and shot someone, right? So what they did to orchestrate an understanding of the situation is they allowed citizens to come free of charge to a training mechanism that was a similar situation. They were put in an environment with similar response, similar stressors, and they were asked to decipher between the good guy, the bad guy, and all the stressors. And guess what? It was an 80-plus percent fail rate by the citizens. And you know what? At that point, people started saying, wow, this is much more than I could have comprehended until I did this. So I think in this country, what we're seeing now is this, this position of cops are bad, right? The cops are pulling their gun too quickly. The cops are doing this. But it's not that moment. It's the 25 situations prior to that moment where their life was compromised, the, the, the life of other people or the safety of other people was compromised, and they didn't pull their gun. Correct. And then they're faced with a situation where it's a similar stimulus, it's a similar stressor, and they look at the situation and they say, this is oddly familiar. This is really going to escalate very, very quickly. This is my defense mechanism. And they pull the weapon then, and we criminalize them. We say they're the bad guy. These people are doing an unthankful job. They're underpaid. They're under. I mean, they're overstressed and they're under like recovered from their stressors, right? So. And then they get overworked too. On top of that, because 100 percent, 100 percent shifts and jobs. And we ask these people to be Superman, and they're not. They're they're you and me, right? They're like I said. They every person, home, man. Every person in this room could probably pass that test. Every person in this room could probably learn to fire a weapon. We could probably escalate to that level. But the fact is, I've not been in a squad car for 5, 10, 15 years. I've not put up with day after day after day after day of bullshit. And then I've been asked to say in a split second when it means I'm going home to my kids, I'm going home to my wife, my family, or the bad guy who is obviously doing something wrong is not going to go home. Then we call the police officer the bad guy. I think it's a real situational issue in this country where we could do more for our officers to train them in stress relief, but we could also do more in the, in the awareness capacity for our citizens to say, look, we have to give these guys a break. We have to understand that you're safe at night and you have the ability, you have the luxury to get on your horn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and bitch about this because this guy put somebody in jail. This guy did pull his weapon when it was necessary. And until we get to that point, People are just going to continue criminalizing these officers and our soldiers for doing the job that they're tasked to do that other people will not do. And at the end of the day, we're still talking about what percentage? We're talking about a, a 5%, 10%, even less than Absolutely. that of officers that are, but that are the problem. The good, the good stories don't make the of news, and that's the sad, that's the sad reality. That's supposed to be status quo. That's what you're supposed to do. Exactly. You do your job. That's not a story. Right. You do the job outside of the curricular or the curriculum, then it becomes an issue. Good or bad? It's such a can of worms, and we could talk about it all day. And I haven't even been on the department as long as some people here, like Tyson's been on for a really long time. Um, and my experience is so short, but all I can tell you is what I've learned in the short time is that, like, the only thing that I can do, because I don't, I wouldn't say my squad is my team necessarily even, is that all I can do 
is not listen to the noise and only manage my adrenaline. Manage my adrenaline, manage my adrenaline. So like, just like you're saying, like that 30 times or the 10 calls leading up to the one call, coming back down from that call, going to the next call, like it's, all you can do is just go to an equilibrium. I mean, what, what else can I do? I can't hold myself to a standard that people will not fucking understand. Like, it's just, it, you'll drive so crazy. Andy, can I ask you a question? Sure. Do you feel that your training met and exceeded the expectation of the enemy? You know, at, at the highest level of the SEALs. And the only reason I ask this is because I've worked, with, I've been privileged to work with some of the teams in Damneck. And what I observed from a training standpoint is an RPE scale, okay? So you're a trained SEAL. You're someone who is expected and, and admired for your ability to go above and beyond, correct? So an RPE scale is a rated perceived, uh, rated perceived exertion. Mm -hmm. So how do I compare someone in a training situation of a gym, a swim, a run, to give me an eight or a nine on their training scale when you've been trained to go into combat to potentially save the life of your buddy beside you, to execute an attack, to execute a mission and come back safely, where that's a 10, right? And in your head, no matter what the training scale says, that is your 10. So when you ask someone as a SEAL to give you an RPE based on a workout, they're gonna underestimate the workout every single time. The, over, the, uh, the overwhelming number that I saw was these stress injuries, these overexertion injuries were extreme because guys are not gonna say, this beat me today, or this hurt me today, or this was too much today. So I'm talking to these guys, why are we doing an RPE? Uh, that's all I got. What are, you, what are you training them on? Are you doing a 531? Are you doing a five by five? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? Well, we do a combination of things. Give it to me. Like, you're training the best of the best of the best. So I'm asking you straight up, did your training prepare you above and beyond for what you faced in combat? Yeah. Okay. So was that because, that, and that's the perfect answer, and that's what I expected from you because that's what you're trained to do. But I'm asking you, could it have been better? Should it have been better? I mean, that's a little bit contingent on the world that we're facing I mean, it's, uh, the enemy that I face is different than the enemy that they're facing now, and your training, the training has to adapt and evolve with what the world is challenging you with, not what you, there's no RPE scale in real life. And that's what I'm looking for. That's the answer that I'm looking for, and that's the bullshit that I'm trying to cut through. We have to give these people a responsible training system that allows them to excel, prepare, and go into combat situations healthy not going over there beat up from these ultra runs, these ultra swims, these ultra training sets, like five mile swim, two mile run, and then a max effort deadlift? Who drew that up? The sadist that just wants to say, I push these guys to the brink, or the guy that said, I'm preparing you for combat? You know what I mean? There's an educated way to do this, and we're not doing it. Right, saying, saying that you trained harder than anyone else doesn't mean you trained smarter than anyone else. Exactly, and these guys would train. We, we just saw it. We had two SEALs drown on Team 2, right? Mm -hmm. We just had two SEALs drown on Team 2. Why? Because the training asked them to go that hard. Wrong. Wrong? They were in the pool, right? The, the they were in the pool, right. Yeah. Nobody forced them to go to the pool in the morning. They were fucking idiots. Okay. They were hungover. They right. should have had a buddy system. One guy should have remained on the surface while the other guy was down below. They both went down under, shallow water blacked out, and passed out. Sure. That's not procedure. That's not training. 
That's two people who are being complacent. Okay, well, this is a situation where you know more than I do, yep. and I and I totally respect that, and I retract what I said. No, it's okay. I mean, but, but, like, but people have to understand that it's not – you have a choice in right. how you apply the training. Right. And there's a bottom 10% in every team, even the highest-performing team. Right. You can't let the bottom or the top 10% of any team color the entire team. you got to take them both with a grain and meet somewhere in between. Well, yeah, you're exactly right. The weakest link is the strength of the chain, right? But I think – looking at those situations, looking at the situations of guys who are what I would determine and unable to go and train at the level that I would ask an athlete to train. But combat is not athletics, right? So these guys get conditioned to push and push and push and push and push. But in the preparation, we shouldn't ask them to push to that level. We should prepare them the best for that level, but not push them to the point of breaking. You need to shift a lot of that onus back onto the individual. They need to understand what it is that they're training for. They need to understand their limits. And if somebody overexerts themselves and hurts themselves, that's not the program. That's the individual. These people that we're talking about specifically, and the only one I can really talk about is the SEAL teams. I can't talk about the police force. We're selecting for fortitude and mental toughness and people who are never going to quit. But there's an essence of intelligence that comes along with those things as well. And there's an essence of self-awareness. There's an essence that should be of integrity and the ability to monitor and say, hey, I shouldn't do this. So I have found that the ones that take it too far, it's highlighting a character trait that may be hidden somewhere else. And it's just displaying itself in like a physical manner. Sure. But in my mind, a training program is only as good as the individual applies themselves. If they go balls out and they hurt themselves, that is not the fault of the training program. If they have a training program, it's capable of preparing and you had a perfect program, but the individual is lazy and isn't prepared for the application and combat. Whose fault is that? Sure. It can't be put back on the program. It's the individual that's going through that program and how they execute that and implement that program to get to their end state. Can, assuming it's a good program. Assuming yeah. it's a good program, yeah. Can, You've can, seen awful programming. I mean, I remember when we talked about this on Skelly Optex, but when you came in the SEAL teams, it was what? Big bench, long Fucking swim. Chest and try. Yeah, and what? And, What's wrong with that program? In run. Well, how much time do we have? America. <laughs> well, but I mean, like there, there came a situation. There's nothing wrong with the program. It just doesn't work in real life. Well, it does nothing wrong with that program. It's just, if you're a bodybuilder, it's awesome. If you are doing things that require a high heart rate and that require you to have strength near that maximal heart rate, yeah, it's probably not the best call. So it's not that it's a bad program. It was poorly applied to the environment that we weren't actually in at that time because it was all hypothetical. Can can self awareness <laughs> can self awareness be trained? Can self awareness be trained? Yeah, I think you can train. I mean, yes. I mean, that's my answer to just about anything, though. Is is there any implement in place to train self awareness from Navy Peel, Navy SEALs perspective? Couldn't tell you currently. I don't know. Okay, from uh, in the practices that you applied when you were training seals was there anything to aim for self-awareness or was it a byproduct of the tools that you applied i think for my entire life uh i have been hypercritical of my own performance and where that i stand i don't necessarily know if it was taught but we keep score in everything in the seal teams and score should be kept so you know where you fall so you could use that as motivation if you need to or you can just look at it and say hey this is how my performance impacted the team uh that's all the self-awareness I ever needed, was the desire never to be on the bottom. And just somewhere, the best I could hope to do is be somewhere in the middle, generally in the cohort of people I was working with. 
Now, Tex, you're asking a lot about self-awareness. Is this for a friend or? What is, no, because uh, John and I had a talk earlier. But yeah, yeah, about self-awareness. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, again, going back to uh, John and I speaking at the Army, we introduced the John's athlete model. So it was mental, it was athleticism and skill. Oh, you mean the Venn diagram that the, I included so that people think, you know, there was a study that if you include a Venn diagram in your speech. But if you say this, John, they're going to take away what you're but about to say. that study I'm was presented in the form of, of a Venn diagram. diagram. <laughs> <laughs> it's, no, it's, a, it's just a joke we have. So go on. But if you tell them... No, it's just our joke. <laughs> All right. It's uh, not actually a real study text. But No, in the, the mental side of things. So again, and then uh, kind of reflecting on Fred Hatfield's work and his... He's all mental. Again, five five guy that can squat a thousand pounds. It's all mental. Uh, but his his that's a lie. But okay, continue. The guy. The guy he's is, not. Yeah. He's Have not. Have you ever seen a squat bench press with somebody's mind or a squat bench press? That's terrible. Have you ever? No, the mind doesn't do it. It drives the body. And Gandhi's hell of a squat. incredibly powerful <laughs> mind that that drove his body. A hell of a but but reading a lot of, about his mental side of his performance and then sitting in and, and meeting and hearing him speak, a big f part of his was uh, self-esteem. Mm -hmm. And so he talked a lot about too high self-esteem. Yeah, that Hubris in that it wasn't very um, performance-based in that if you got coaching or constructive feedback, you were not able to apply it. You mean if you thought too well of yourself, you couldn't? Right, but is this shocking news to anyone, or? Well, I don't know. It seems it, like what you were referring to earlier with the guys who you said there there might be like some something within them that's like creating this problem where they they take the train to the extreme. Well, they saw they the movie Navy own. Seals, and Which they all wanted to be documentary. Well, I jumped out of the back of that jeep off that bridge. That was fucking awesome. So yeah. we get to work on Thursdays. <laughs> well, that's I mean, uh, the, jeep, the guys right? that wanted yeah. to be Charlie Sheen. <laughs> I have woke up in the surf before. <laughs> <laughs> That was uh, 1990. It shouldn't text. be a shock that if you think really highly of yourself, you're not going to bring on board feedback. That's not really revelatory. I would hope. No, but it, just again, working with a lot of athletes, that, that big well, a lot of people big fish, small pond. Big fish, small pond. Then you go to a D1 program or just something better than uh, you were. You get caught because your self-esteem was so high, because your hubris was too high. Here's a good example. Uh, my buds class had 180 people in it. And the first evolution that you do of buds is they put you in rows of 10, or this is what they did in my class. And I saw this happening when I was there as an instructor. Rows of 10. Who here in this classroom wants to be a SEAL? How many hands do you think went up? 180. 180. I would hope so, right? Because if it didn't, I don't know how you ended up there. It's not the Air Force Academy or the freaking Navy Corpsman School or something like that, right? Uh, who here in this room, there's nothing that's going to possibly stop you? How many hands do you think you went up? 180. 180. All right, so my class was full of D1, not close to professional athletes, D1 college athletes, world-class runners, world-class swimmers. We had 18 people last day. First person to quit my class was the best runner of the class. He quit on the obstacle course because he couldn't do the obstacle course. Best swimmer in my class was the first guy to quit on a running evolution. You task people, like you're saying, that you know, they're really a specialist at one thing and they develop that level of hubris where they think they're unbeatable because they've been catered to and they're told that they're special and they only challenge themselves with the things that they're good at. As soon as they encounter failure, you're done. And that's where the power of the what's between your ears, I think, is so important. Well, it's back to whether you decide failure is a good teacher or it's something to back away from. Hi, my name is Brandon Lilly. That's exactly what I was. 
I was I, I often joke I was good at squat bench and deadlift. I wasn't even good at getting a blowjob. Right, I was so good at three things. Did you practice? I did. I practiced a lot. Sometimes I, I you was, have to give to on was, yourself. Ten thousand hours. Were you level right. ninety-nine supple leopard? If I could, oh, nice. if I could do that to myself, I probably wouldn't leave the house. So well, that's uh, what Kelly Starrett teaches. If you go to his mobility <laughs> seminar, but, that's but what it's true about. True story. Well, I think John's rib popped ribs. out. <laughs> but but you know you that's why Andy had his rib removed. You become so. Got to do what you, you got to do, John. Just to one side that it cooks to the left. Yeah. <laughs> but that was my thing: squat, bench, and deadlift. That that was my sport. That was my area of expertise. That was where I invested my life. And, and sadly, uh, the trajectory of my life suffered because of that, yeah. right? So now I'm going to struggle to regain the balance that was once lost. So for a SEAL in, in an area that I would think, okay, you guys have certain speci you know, specificities for your, for your training and as, as far as your execution on the battlefield. But as someone who went through BUDS, as someone who went through the service, as someone who looks back upon their career, could your training have been better? Sure. Okay. So that's that's what I want to get to. I want to start having conversations with guys like you to come back and say, this is how we could do better. Because as a lifter, someone with 14 surgeries, someone that, that broke themselves for the love of the sport, I want to look at other lifters and I want to say, man, listen, it's all good. I love what you're doing. I love your effort. But there's more to the story, right? There's more that you could be doing to prepare yourself. So why don't they call you? Why don't they ask that question? That's my, that's my issue. Why don't they call me or why don't they call you? No, I, they shouldn't call me because I haven't done it. I haven't lived oh. it. I haven't breathed it. Now, if you want to talk powerlifting, call me. Sure. I'll tell you. But how current are you and how up to speed are you on the innovation and evolution? I mean, it's for me, it, I'm out of touch. I left the last day of June in 2013. So. But is combat, is combat escalated so quickly in four years that you're so far removed that you don't have that space to say? How many I'm, people were killed in the Civil War? That I don't know. How many people were killed in World War One? I, I know, I, I know, well, some. More Americans <laughs> killed in the Civil War. Uh, but Just stay with me. World War Two, more or less than World War One. Less. Vietnam, more or less. Less. Iraq and Afghanistan, more or less. less. War is changing every single day. Right. So it's largely through the technology and capability. So in four years, yeah, I'm not current at all. I still am capable of doing the things that I was doing, and the enhancements and training that I would recommend would be more along probably the technology side, sure. the innovation side of the house. And so for me, it's not the right person to call. They should basically just, the people who are in, and actually I'm going to talk a little bit about this tomorrow, but innovation and evolution, it has to be a part of your planning cycle. So, and, and, I, and I say this hearing your, your podcast with Rogan, which I thought was fantastic, you have some some issue with I would call it more Rogan's podcast with me but <laughs> well you know I think he owns that particular sure <laughs> sure he's got a pretty successful podcast it's but uh, all right. he's who, following in my in my model huh? show Rogan yeah. I think yeah. is yeah. but uh I love him. but in reality you you have a you have an internal and I'm not just saying you I'm saying yep. the average soldier has an internal balance of what I did versus the overall good that it did, right? Yep. So my question is, if you feel that your career was successful, I think you have something to offer. Because the numbers that I lifted just t four years ago, 2013, yep. was that, that was the peak of my lifting. I'm light years behind the guys now, right? I was a number one, a number two, a number three ranking for years. Yeah, but you're talking iteration. So it's an iteration of a continual... 
set of goals where the you know Andy I believe dropped innovation where sure. there's new it's it's a whole new technology I, to traverse. When I so, came into the SEAL teams, we didn't even have night vision. I remember the first time I had it on my rifle, it was a night vision scope right out of the movie Navy SEALs. <laughs> Switching to starlight. Hold on a second. Oh, there's everything. Oh, never mind. The, the clap is on. I'm actually still looking at the dark. Did you guys ever get the Predator yeah. stuff? To what? The Predator vision? No, that shit doesn't work, man. <laughs> well, you're just covering mud. Yeah. Maybe you just haven't seen the Predator yet. I wish. But the last point I'll make, and, and the last thing I want to say is, first of all, I highly respect you, and I highly respect what you did in your service. But I think that you're more qualified, even in your admission of, of ignorance of the current state, than some of the people who are holding the reins to training these young men. That's all I'll say, and I think that... I don't think I have anything to offer the military anymore. I sure. think if I have anything to offer, it's to people who are outside of the military. 0.05% of, you know, of the U.S. population is serving. At the peak in World War II, 6%. About two-thirds of those were from the draft at the peak right. times. There's a huge delta between people who have the experiences that I have, which I still to this day can't figure out if they were good experiences or bad experiences. I've just come to grips with them, and I'm trying to do something positive with them. The military is a machine that I can't keep up with, but the lessons and the values that I learned from my time in the military, I would say those are still current. So I don't have anything to give back to the military. I'm just trying to do something positive with those lessons and those experiences and try to convey them in some type of digestible manner to people who won't get those experiences. That's uh, all I can offer. Thank you. And well, we look forward to that. Yeah, yeah awesome. on that note, that is I'm our done. plan tomorrow <laughs> at the Power Athlete Symposium. Amazing. Thank you, people. Uh, another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and Conditioning. Ing, 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 ing. No, Kelly, no. And scene. Bye. Bye. Now it's time for you to impair your performance. Feel like you missed out on some life-changing shit? You did. Fly vicariously through Hash 2017 Power Athletic Symposium, and keep your eyes peeled for video content of the whole event coming out of HQ. Better yet, make 2018 the year you don't sleep on the symposium. While the event was our biggest turnout to date, we intend on keeping the experience an intimate one. Thank you to all of our guest speakers who inspired hearts and minds, and a very special thanks to the volunteer staff whose efforts were largely unseen, but truly made the weekend a success. Until next time, bye.